I, I've just always wanted to have an intro song, you know. I, <laughs> you watch a baseball game and the, and the closer comes up and he's always got a song. He runs out to the mound. And, uh, but I, actually, I will tie that in in a minute. Uh, I want to extend some greetings. It's always important to do that to people who've been good friends and significant teachers or mentors and I would be certainly remiss if I didn't start with Brother Stacy Klein, whom I love dearly, dearly, dearly. In spite of the fact that I was in his first class, the first class he taught here was Old Testament survey. And at that time, it was a five-credit course. Under Brother Stacy, it was about a 12-credit course. Um, but I've, I've got to tell you, in spite of the suffering, Brother Stacy, and, and I've said this of you before, uh, his diligence in study, his thoroughness in preparation has been an inspiration to me my whole life in ministry. And so thank you. Thank you for that. And I see Chris Ball sitting there. Good to see Chris, president of Elam Fellowship. Of course, Dr. Fred and Sister Debbie, uh, we, we sort of ships passing in the night. You were untying and pulling out, and I was coming on in and taking your place here at Elam Bible Institute in 1975, 76. Guy Gabriel, so good to see you. We, we were here together. And, wow, Dick and Margie Fred, not Margie Grout, good to see you both. My wife, by the way, uh, we were classmates, but we just kind of didn't notice each other until one day, well, I, I know it's hard to imagine that the weather here gets miserable, but one miserable <laughs> weather day, uh, winter, we ate in, in, I think it's Spencer Hall now. It used to be the main building. Uh, chapel ended. We trudge up the hill, and the wind is howling, and the snow is blowing. And I got up there relatively early and just turned to look down the hill. And, and here in the, this picture of misery, the student body is all hunched up against the wind and the snow, and they're trudging up the hill. And here comes my wife, perfectly erect head up, face into the storm, and I said, man, there's a woman with strength, and boy, has she needed it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, my intro song, by the way, as I'm sure you're aware entitled He's a Pirate from the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, all the way from 2003. Most of you were born then. And I trust even if you weren't born then, you've seen it. Do you know, Dr. Fred, you mentioned the name Andre Crouch, and there wasn't a lot of response there. A few weeks ago, I used Steve McQueen as a sermon illustration. Nobody knew what I was talking about. In that movie, Pirates of the Caribbean, 
Elizabeth Turner, who is the governor's daughter, was kidnapped by pirates, and she appeals to the pirates, actually appeals to the pirates' code, claiming that she had been promised her freedom. And she challenges the pirate captain, saying, you have to take me back to shore according to the code of the order of the brethren. But Captain Barbosa interrupts, and he replies, First, your return to shore was no part of our negotiations nor our agreement, and so I must do nothing. And secondly, you must be a pirate for the pirate's code to apply, and you're not. And thirdly, the code is more what you'd call guidelines than an actual book of rules. Well, today, I want to make confession early. I'm going to do something that I have sought to train others not to do. Today, I am speaking to you out of frustration, a frustration that has become chronic and is deepening. The society in which we live, and in increasing measure, the church, seems to be living by the pirate's code. We are governed by guidelines, by suggestions, by multiple choice options, by someone's most recent good idea, by crowd hysteria, by the media, or perhaps by our current mood. Let me give you some recent examples in my own church. A newly engaged couple had come to me and asked if I would be willing to perform their wedding. And, and of course I was. And in our first premarital session, it's always just a let's get to know each other kind of thing. I don't like to marry strangers. But in that first session, I will always get to a point where I say, now, it is important. You are engaged. Your wedding is X number amount of months off. It is important that you walk in honor, that you honor God in your relationship and in your conduct, that you walk uprightly before him, and that you keep yourselves pure so we don't have to walk into this wedding in shame. And, and everybody nods their head and acknowledges the truth and the wisdom of that statement. Well, this young couple came to me just a few weeks ago, all excited, and announced, we're moving in together. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We talked, and you agreed that you were going to walk and conduct yourselves uprightly and in honor. And they said, oh, we are, we are, we're just going to live together. You're going to live together. Oh, we'll abstain. We'll, we'll stay pure. I said, you're going to live together in a house with no one else there for X number of months, and you think you're going to conduct yourselves in honor. I said, let me grant that you do that. It will be a miracle. But if you do, the moment you tell anyone that you are living together, your witness is shot. Your testimony is dead. 
you have nothing to say. The second thing that happened is we had a family come to visit, and they had moved into the area, were looking for a church, and they were doing it right. You know, if you're going to look for a new church, you can't just go once. You need to go multiple times. Take your time looking for a church. Any church can have a good day, even if they're a bad church, and any good church can have a bad day. And so you need to go more than once to develop a flavor, a sense of the flow of the ministry of that place. And this couple came to us, and they had visited multiple churches, and and I talked with them, and they made this statement. In all of our visits, you're the only church we visited where a message of holiness is being preached. Hearing that was not an attaboy for me. It was not a pat on the back and and saying, oh, job well done. It grieves me. I have a heart for the church. I have a heart for the church, for the body of Christ. And if, and I fear it's true, if what they said is true, there's not a whole lot going on out there having to do with a call to holiness. Though it is clearly a biblical call for the followers of Jesus. Today, holiness is often equated with legalism. Churches today are afraid of offending people. But the truth of the matter is, is that holiness is simply being like Jesus. Holiness is living in the awareness of whose we are. Holiness is living in the light of the truth that we're not our own, but we have been bought at a price. And if this couple is to be believed, nobody's talking about it. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build for me and where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, and trembles at my word. He who is humble, to be humble is to have an accurate view of self. An accurate view of self in light of God's greatness, love, and mercy. To be contrite is to walk with a sense of Humility, a sense of repentance. A humble person is very mindful of the grace that they have received and is quick to extend it to others. A humble person believes that all good things come from the hand of God. 
If we are contrite, we are aware of our constant need for grace. We are, after all, sinners saved by grace, and having been saved by grace, we are now saints covered and kept by grace. It is all of grace. I used to sign my letters in Christ, in Him. Last few years, I guess it happens when you get older. I sign by grace alone. By grace alone. To esteem. God says, this is the one I esteem. He's humble, he's contrite, he trembles at my word. To esteem is to look upon with regard, to show regard to, to pay attention to, to consider with favor. You want to be esteemed by God? Walk in humility and contriteness. Stay low and tremble. At his word. Tremble at his word. As I have ministered these many years, you'd think that you would, over time, get to a place where crafting a sermon becomes easy. Like a carpenter building a house. The first few are very slow. And then once he figures it out, they, they go up quicker and quicker. I am spending today twice as long to prep a sermon as I did 20 years ago. Because God has built into me by his spirit a trembling at his word. And when I stand before a people with the awesome privilege and responsibility of breaking God's word open to them, it is something that causes me to tremble to tremble at the possibilities of what God can do, but also to tremble at the possibilities that if I am not careful in my preparation and presentation, I could quench what God wants to do. God esteems the humble, the contrite, and those who tremble at his word. In another passage of Scripture, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and this in the context of a word of judgment against the people of Israel in Eli's day, God says this, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Disdained to be considered not worthy of consideration. Not worthy of consideration. That passage in 1 Samuel 2.30 is, is not a law, it's not a guideline, it is a life principle and it's a promise, an outrageous promise. If we will honor God, God will honor us. And listen, I am not ashamed to admit that I want to be honored by God. I want to be esteemed by God. I want to be looked upon by the God of the universe with favor.
And so I will seek to honor him in all aspects of my life. As I make my way through my life and through this world, I will seek with the help of the Spirit and an overlay of grace upon grace, I will seek to walk in humility and in contriteness in spirit, and I will tremble at his word. Let me show you a quick snapshot of my age and my bias. I carry a Bible. It's leather and paper and ink. And I study out of a Bible. I, of course, have a computer, all the latest programs, and, and use those extensively. But right next to it is my open Bible, and I'm always in there. I find that when I'm in my Bible, I chase more rabbits. When I chase more rabbits, my knowledge expands. But when I am prepping, there will come times when I am confronted with the Word of God that I fall in love all over again with the Word. And I find myself trembling at the Word. And I'll pick my Bible up and hold it to my heart and thank God for the gift of his word. I've never done that with my tablet. Just saying. Now let me challenge you to consider three questions. With the love that God has shown us, all of us, how can we not in love obey him and seek to honor him in every choice we make. Pastor, we've decided to move in together. And I asked them bluntly, do you think that this honors God? Well, no, but it's only for a little while and we're going to keep ourselves pure. In love, God has given his very best for you and for me. He sacrificed his son for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we not live a life that honors God who made that kind of investment in us for the forgiveness of our sin? God's great love calls for a response. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Straightforward, cut and dried, simple. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. And John in 1 John 5, 3 says, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands aren't burdensome. With the love that God has shown us, how can we not in love obey him and seek to honor him? Secondly, if the commands of God don't form the basis of our behavior, if they don't set our course, what does? What does? Or, or put it another way. Says who? 
you're about to make a choice. Says who? Who says that's a good idea? Who says that's a bad idea? Who sets our standards? Is it our society? Is it the pressure of the majority? Is it the loudest voice? If we don't have an objective, unchanging standard, we will be morally, spiritually, socially adrift. We live in a day of cultural and societal arrogance. Our society thinks that we know better. We believe that our values are superior. We think that we're more compassionate even than God. And we are floating downstream in the wrong direction. The third thing I'd ask that you'd consider is this. Is the Bible the word of God or does it contain the word of God? Chew on that for a minute. If the Bible merely contains the word of God, who decides what is or what isn't God's word to us? If we are of the mind that the Bible merely contains the word of God, let me tell you what happens. We elevate ourselves to our own supreme authority. The word ceases to be our supreme authority. Our exercise of choice becomes our supreme authority. After all, if I'm the deciding factor, aren't I liable to set aside what I don't like? Years ago, my family and I were on vacation down in the Myrtle Beach area. I am a seafood lover. My wife loves me, so she'll tolerate and go with me. But you drive down the highways and byways there, and you see these massive... Anybody familiar with Myrtle Beach? I think they still do this. Big billboards, 10,000-item seafood buffet, that kind of thing. Actually, 120, 125, 130-item seafood buffet. And I am seeing those things, and I'm making a personal vow that we will go there. And so finally... I spring it on my family. Hey, Dad's been looking forward to going to this seafood buffet all week long. What do you say? Well, we pull in, and, and the guy who was going to seat us comes, and, and I said, can you give us a minute? Can we walk past the buffet? I said, sure. And so I wanted to see how my family would react to this 120, 30, 40, 500 item seafood buffet. And my youngest daughter, it's probably four at the time, at the end of this thing, I said to her, well, honey, what do you think? And she said, I'd probably eat the rice. There was a Wendy's right next door. No lie, we ate at Wendy's. I'm still bitter. (laughs) 
Scripture is not a buffet. You don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to pluck out the juiciest parts and leave the rest for somebody else. Scripture is the word of God. It is God's heart and mind revealed. And we embrace it all. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Becoming a Christian is to become a follower of Christ. It involves coming under his lordship. It means following Jesus as Lord in every area of life. Every area of life. Jesus desires and deserves to be Lord of spirit, soul, body, mind, and heart. He desires to be Lord over our will, our desires, our attitudes, and our emotions. He also has the audacity and the right to be Lord over our marriage, our family, our career, our finances, our entertainment choices, our leisure time. He not only deserves it, he expects it. In Luke 6, one of my favorite passages, starting in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? I'll show you what he's like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood claim came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Listen, life gets so much simpler when we decide to go all in. When, by the working of God's grace, we seek to honor him, we make it our goal to please him, as Paul says, in every area of life. Life gets simpler when we choose to walk in humility and contriteness of spirit and when we tremble at his word. And when we do, God's response, he turns his face toward us. He breathes on us. He honors and esteems us. And we know his pleasure. Not a bad deal. Amen. And God bless you.